Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. When I was a girl, my brother gave me five-year diaries for Christmas, year after year. The diaries fit perfectly in my box of treasures. Each diary was made with a small lock and came with a tiny key. I came to love setting words upon the page, and I've been writing in journals ever since. Those diaries are part of a lifelong path of exploring the purpose and meaning of life. In 2016, I founded Green Bucket Press. We design and produce the voice book line of writing journals. The voice book is made in our workshop studio in Irondale, Alabama. Produced in a variety of formats, including the classic, the mini, and the tall, the voice book is practical, elegant, and durable. Made with fine papers and printed with grid, line, and dot formats, the voice book is made for your voice, your thoughts, your ideas, dreams, hopes, lists, goals, accomplishments, archives, poems, stories, plans, and more. Check out the voice book as well as our published books and printed merch at www.greenbucketpress.com backslash work shop. Interested in customizing the voice book for your organization or event or buying in bulk? Contact us today at info at greenbucketpress.com. I'm Ann Bailey, the host of Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. 
I so clearly remember the moment when I promised myself that I would never give up on my dreams for a creative world grounded in peace and justice. That I would never give up on redefining profit and success in a way that considers true well-being. That I would never give up on exploring ways to share wealth of heart and mind with the whole world through writing, speaking, and teaching. I would never abandon my passion to change the world no matter what. In the second episode of the Emerge Alabama Voices of Progress series, we hear from Amy Wazaluka, Lindsay Deckard, and Stacy Probst. These women have committed to a vision of the future that is more just, equitable, and inclusive. These women see governance as a way to serve and to shape a better Alabama, in which citizens are educated and valued, offered opportunities for economic and community empowerment, in which well-being is not a dream, but is a premise of leadership. Through cooperation and collaboration, the members of Emerge Alabama are changing the state of Alabama, and I hope that you'll join in. For more about Emerge Alabama, please go to emergeamerica.org backslash emergeal. To see photos, get links, and to learn more about Amy Wazaluka, Lindsay Deckard, and Stacy Probst, please go to greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. This episode features the music of the Red Dirt Roses, an acoustic trio based in Birmingham, Alabama. The trio includes Jean-Marie Campbell, Caroline Baker, and Beverly Owen. For more about the Red Dirt Roses, go to reddirtroses.com. Present Tense Podcast features stories of authentic voice. You can subscribe to Present Tense Podcast on iTunes and find us on Facebook at Present Tense Podcast. And now for the episode. Amy Wazaluka is running for Alabama State Senate District 2. She earned her undergraduate degree at Auburn University, where she developed a lifelong desire to serve her community, which led her to go on to study law at the University of Alabama School of Law.
Amy says, too often we have seen elected officials who view politics not as a way to serve their communities, but as a team sport where political points matter more than the needs of their constituents. Alabama deserves politicians who are willing to use common sense to confront the realities and challenges before us. My background as an attorney, a childhood cancer survivor, and a mother gives me insights into many of the kitchen table issues so many Alabamians face and allows me to advocate for the needs of District 2 from a position of cooperation and compassion. To learn more about her campaign, you can visit her website at www.wazalukaforsenate.com. That's W-A-S-Y-L-U-K-A for Senate.com. You can also check her out on social media at at Wazaluka for, that's the number four, Senate. I'm running for Alabama State Senate District 2, and that area covers uh, Madison, East Limestone, Harvest, a little bit of Tony, and part of Huntsville near Oakwood and um, over near Bridge Street Town Center. What caused you to run for office, Amy? I am a, well, really my background, um, I am a half-deaf childhood cancer survivor. I was diagnosed with lymphoma at 17. Mm -hmm. And so I have had firsthand experience um, with many many of the facets of our healthcare system and dealing with health insurance. I had wonderful health insurance when I was diagnosed with my hearing loss and then with my cancer. And I was lucky that I was able to have great insurance then because I was able to get the treatment that I needed to beat it. And then when I was in law school, before there were protections for people with pre-existing conditions, I aged out of my parents' insurance and was on the other side of that issue. And because I'd been a cancer survivor, the only insurance that was offered to me to purchase was insurance that didn't cover sick visits at the doctor, yearly checkups. Essentially, it didn't cover anything that I needed to maintain my health or to catch my cancer if it had returned. And so when the issue of healthcare made waves, in both before and after the 2016 election, I noticed a lot of politicians talking about healthcare from a very one-sided perspective. And we can't do that because it's not a one-sided issue. It's multifaceted, and we have to look at every side of the issue and also take a close look at how our decisions as politicians can affect people's day-to-day lives. It was around that time that I started getting more involved with our politics in general, and I would write letters to our congressional representative. Um, I actually got a meeting with a congressional representative and talked to him about my experience as a childhood cancer survivor and my struggles with insurance. And it was not a week after that meeting that that particular congressional representative made a statement that people who make good life choices shouldn't have to pay for those of us with pre-existing conditions. And so I decided that one of us with pre-existing conditions needed to run for office because nobody is going to look out for people with pre-existing conditions better than somebody who's been there and who knows the devastation that taking a one-sided approach to these issues can cause. So it sounds like you're saying in in a bigger sense that for you, this particular issue sparked you to think about how you can affect change that affects a broad group of people. Yes. 
Yes, it does. Um, healthcare is something that touches everybody because everybody at one time or other will have a pre-existing condition. It's an essential building block of our American dream, basically, our healthcare, our education, and our opportunity. Um, but I will say that the issue that I saw with the healthcare debate of politicians looking at issues from a one-sided perspective was not contained to the issue of healthcare. We have kind of an epidemic of politicians in our state looking at issues from a one-sided perspective, whether that be education, whether that be investing in small businesses. And as an appellate attorney and as a trial attorney before that, um, part of my job is having to work with opposing parties and work with people on different sides of an issue and try to Mm -hmm. come to some sort of consensus. And so I feel like my background in that respect also gives me a lot of empathy and gives me a lot of experience that I can bring to the table to so that we can have an elected leader with the ability to tackle these issues from a multifaceted approach. What are your objectives? You've brought up health care. Um, yes. What else as a, as a future elected official, Amy? Well, like I said, I see health care, education, and opportunity as really the building blocks to our American dream as we know it. And I think that dream is that we want our children to have a better future and better opportunities than we had. And to do that, they have to be healthy so they can go out and get education so that they can go work. The education opportunities have to be there so that they can be competitive with peers both in their state and internationally and internationally now because we live in such an expanding society. And then there has to be opportunities to allow them to grow and to thrive in the area that they live if they choose to remain here. And so as an elected official, those are going to be some of the areas that I spend my time on, um, investing in our public education system, bringing a lottery to Alabama to help with the rise in cost of upper education, ensuring that our public educators are paid fairly so that we can attract the best and retain the best teachers in our profession, ensuring that we're not diverting funds from our public education system. I'm also going to look at supporting our small businesses by looking at regulations which can hinder them from growing, and also by looking at what they need. We have a large, for example, helicopter refurbishing industry here in District 2, and it's expected to grow, but the nearest schools that offer the training necessary to get the certification to enter at the ground level are in Nashville. We are the rocket city. This is something that we can and should be doing as an elected official for our people so that the jobs which are created in our district can be obtained by people who live here. Do you feel that gender plays a role in this race? And if so, how does that manifest? I think it does. Um, I think that I would be naive to say it doesn't because you look at the makeup of our current um, Senate. We have 35 senators. Only four of them are women. We look at the legislation that has been looked at during this past legislative session There are two bills advanced in this last legislative session, one to establish a commission and one to begin attacking the pay gap, um, which exists between men and women in Alabama. Currently, that pay gap causes Alabama families to lose anywhere between $11 billion to, I've heard an estimate as high as $13 billion annually, merely because one of their wage earners is a woman. Gender does play a role in this race. Um, We don't have representation um, in the Senate. We don't have representation in the House. And as a result, these initiatives to decrease this page gap, which are hurting Alabama families, are not getting the traction that they need. 
And so as as a female running for elected office, that's something that's always in the back of my mind. And it's something that I feel very strongly that we need to work towards and work towards ensuring that Alabama families aren't penalized because one wage earner is a woman. When you look at the composition of the Senate and there's not many women, there's disproportionately fewer people of color. And so their voices are also not being heard as loudly as they should be given their makeup in the state in general. So as an elected official, I think it's our job to ensure those voices are being heard and bring them to the table. Is the playing field level in Alabama politics what you're seeing as a candidate? Well, I mean, anytime you have a Republican opponent, they have resources that we just don't have as Democrats. They will be able to massively outspend us. We have districts that are gerrymandered so that we have as few Democrats as possible. Um, So, no, in those respects, the playing field is not level, and we as Democrats have to do what we need to to slowly chip away at that. That -hmm. means getting more people elected. That means getting out a ground game, getting out the vote. Um, We've seen what we can do with the election of Doug Jones. We've seen that it doesn't matter that it's gerrymandered as long as we get out and make our voices heard. The problem is is that we have to convince people how absolutely vital it is to continue to make our voices heard, not just on a national level, but at a local level, so we can start rebuilding our party and start ensuring that we have enough Democrats in office to make sure that our districts aren't as gerrymandered as they are currently. And that, that way, it's not that we need more... I'm not saying that we need them to be gerrymandered in favor of either party, but they really need to be change so that the will of the people is what wins out. It doesn't need to be tilted towards one party or the other, which is what I think you see now. In terms of working within the reality of a Republican supermajority, how do Democrats wake up the voters? So many Democrats don't vote because they feel like, what's the point? Uh, Alabama must be wakened from a deep sleep. I am seriously curious about ideas of how we do that. Well, I think we've gone a long way towards it with the election of Doug Jones. Um, People have seen that it is possible if they get out and they put the work in. I think what we're going to have to fight going forward is to convince people, like I said, that these State-level, local-level races are just as, if not more, important because they can directly affect their lives. Because we can do it. We've seen that we can do it. We just have to make sure that the will is there to get out and pound the pavement and donate to the candidates that you like and volunteer with them at every level, up and down the ballot. Well said. Alabama politics is a hotbed of dirty politics and corruption. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think that, you know, that's probably correct. And I think we've seen that with this last legislative session again. We had a bill which would exempt certain business people from our definition of lobbyists. Um, We've had a bill that would decriminalize conduct that Mike Hubbard got in trouble for. Um, What we need, what we need is to begin to restore ethics in Alabama. 
And I think that begins and ends with restoring transparency in our government. Um, we need people to explain the bills that are putting forward in clear terms and be willing to explain them in clear terms. We need a legislature that is willing to state why they are going to do what they are going to do. Um, it begins and ends with transparency, which is something that my campaign is very committed to, which is why we have legislative updates telling you bills that have been coming out with this past legislative session, how we read them, what our take on them is, so that people are aware of what's going on. You know, bills can be billed as something that's innocuous enough, like ethics reform. But then, like I said, with this legislative session, they will come out and do things like change change who classifies as a lobbyist. Um, so we have to be very careful, and we need to start um, at our state level with a the transparency there. Amy, when you think about the state of Alabama, what is your dream for Alabama's future? Oh, my goodness. It's, well, I'll have to tell you about um, last night. And that kind of encapsulates my dream. So while I've been running for office, I have seen and heard some amazing people and seen some amazing things. But last night really did take my breath away. I went to the Madison County Democratic Women um, JFK Scholarship Award. And they awarded a scholarship to an absolutely amazing, articulate, and passionate high school student who's far more aware, active, and engaged than I was or any of my classmates at her age. Um, I have been truly amazed at the caliber of the high school from organizing the Huntsville March for Our Lives to the unbelievable number of qualified applicants for my campaign's intern program. And I've got no doubt that these students are going to change the world and already have begun to do so for the better. Um, following the award of that scholarship, we got to hear Senator Doug Jones speak, and he talked about that while we as Democrats may not always agree, we share a bond forged by our mutual drive to help people. And it's this basic purpose to help others that often seems to be forgotten in politics today in which our high school students in our area seem to embody so effortlessly. And ultimately, I think that it's, it's easy to say that you care about people, but it's another thing to act on that care when the chips are down and your political capital hangs in the balance. I think we owe it to each other and to our state and especially to these students who are looking up to us to do more than say we care. We have to be effective, careful, and realistic leaders so that the tomorrow that these students inherit is really worthy of them. And that is something that I see as a vision for the future for our state. Um, like I said, I'm running for Alabama State Senate District 2. Um, if you would like more information about my campaign, you can check us out at wazalukaforsenate.com. That's www.wazaluka, for senate.com. Um, from that website, you can volunteer for my campaign, donate for my campaign. We need all the support we can get because we have a primary on June 5th, and I would love everybody's vote. Again, I'm Amy Wazaluka, and I'm running for Alabama State Senate District 2 to put people over party. So it's one thing to say that you care about the people of Alabama. It's an entirely different thing to actually do something about it. The statistics don't lie. We have to invest in our public education. We have to invest in our infrastructure and opportunity for the people in our district. And we have to ensure that we start to close the coverage gap by expanding Medicaid in our state. We have to. We are at a crisis point. We have to move Alabama forward so that our people 
have the building blocks that they need to achieve the American dream. Lindsay Deckard is running for Alabama Senate, District 16. Lindsay writes that she is the first of 10 children, and her family moved a lot when she was young. She is the proud mother of two beautiful people, daughter Elizabeth and son Zachary. She moved to Alabama in 1984 because of a great job opportunity and has remained in Alabama ever since. She became warmly attached to the beautiful state of Alabama. She attended the University of South Florida and earned a BS degree in microbiology in 1984. Her first professional job was with Southern Research Institute. She worked as a scientist and program manager at both SRI and UAB for 30 years. I am Lindsay Deckard and I am running for Alabama Senate seat in District 16. That district is, uh, includes all of Vestavia Hills, almost all of Hoover, the southern part of Homewood and the northern strip along uh, Shelby County, the unincorporated part. I've lived in Alabama 34 years, and I've really come to love this state. Uh, whenever I've considered moving, and I've moved quite a bit in my life, uh, I've always been reluctant to do that, and then I finally realized it's because this is my home. I've made a home here, I love it here. And the driving factor behind my running is corruption in our state. 34 years, I've done nothing but watch one scandal after another unfold. It's endemic. And I am tired of the corruption, and I know that it can be conquered. My children are raised. I'm retired, so I don't have the stress of having to work and then try to run a campaign, which I find is almost impossible. This is a full-time job, just running uh, for office. What's the right thing to do for the citizens of Alabama? Somebody needs to represent me and you and, and the voters. Our ability to get close to or be in proximity of the tools to solve problems or to make things better, there's a, there's a very strong system that's been in place for thousands of years, actually, in, in, in our culture that has prevented us having that access. So it's natural for anybody who's in a position of power or control to feel threatened by anybody that wants to come along and change something. <laughs> crumbling, I hope. Mm -hmm. I, I see that it's crumbling. Um, even uh, women in the United States Congress, you'll see, no, no matter the party, they collaborate, they get together. They have basic ideologies or philosophies, but they're also focused on solving a problem. And that is actually, to me, that's the thing that motivates me is I see things that we can fix, that, that we can make better.
And and I do want to I do want to bring up the training that I've received in Emerge. I'm thrilled that I'm part of the inaugural class. It's this has been um, I, I will say upfront the most valuable part of the Emerge training for me, and I think for many of the women in the in the group that I've spoken with is we have developed a bond with each other. It's that the emotional support, the intellectual support we get. And, it, and it's a beautiful thing to see because each woman in that, in that group has different talents to offer, and we've all helped each other in one way or another. The training has been invaluable. I go into this thinking, oh, well, I see this on TV, running a campaign or being part of a campaign, and boy, has it been an eye-opener. <laughs> it's an awful lot of work to run for office. It takes a large community effort for anyone to be successful. I've agreed to be the face of this, but right now I have four other people on my team that are idealistic and passionate and have the same goal that I do, make where they live a better place. We're just getting those tools kind of like as a, a college semester course uh, when you study something, only this is a how-to kind of, uh, of course where, you know, you put the wheel on, 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 on the hub here, and you, this is the bolt you use for that, and that's how it, you, know, you make the whole system work for you. So it's been um, factually enlightening as well as emotionally uplifting. So right now, the Democratic Party is going through a rebuild. You know, Phoenix from the ashes perhaps is a, is a good image to have in one's mind, but there are some people who are working very, very hard to put together a new Democratic Party not the old one based on the same cronyism that pushed it to its downfall, but one that really upholds the ideals of justice and fairness for everyone um, across the spectrum of people. In particular, in my case, Anthony Daniels, um, who is the minority leader in the House, has been very supportive in, in as much as he can be. I know he works very hard throughout the state to try to rebuild the party. Alabama is kind of trapped in its in its history it will benefit Alabama to be able to move forward from that I think the um, the museum opening just a side note for listeners Deckard is talking about the legacy museum that opened to the public on April 26 2018 in Montgomery Alabama the museum is built on the site of a former warehouse where enslaved black people were imprisoned and is located midway between a historic slave market and the main river dock and train station, where tens of thousands of enslaved people were trafficked during the height of the domestic slave trade. The museum was built by EJI and the work of Brian Stevenson. EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, believes that the history of racial inequality and economic injustice in the U.S., has created continuing challenges for all Americans, and more must be done to advance our collective goal of equal justice for all. The U.S. has done very little to acknowledge the legacy of slavery, lynching, and racial segregation. As a result, people of color are disproportionately marginalized, disadvantaged, and mistreated. The new museum is the physical manifestation of the research that EJI has been conducting into the history of racial injustice and the narratives that have sustained injustice across generations. The museum opening, it's, it, 
makes me want to cry. It's very powerful to walk through that and to feel that. And if you take that on a broader perspective and you realize what one group of people had to suffer through for the color of their skin, we are brought up and indoctrinated as young American children to believe in the idea of America and all the things that it's supposed to stand for, equality, justice. And when you're eight, nine years old, you know, or even younger than that, you know, you buy into that. You believe that. That's, that's who I am. And we get jaded and a little cynical as we get a little older and see that, you know, well, so-and-so got away with this and someone else can do that. And you get moved off of that ideal that you, you want to achieve for. It's, it's, and that's all it really is. It's an idea and an ideal. And if we're not always striving towards that, the idea of America is inspiring across the globe. And because we're fortunate to be here, we have, we have a duty to uphold that and not let ourselves disintegrate into tyranny and class warfare and racism and all the ugliness that humans are capable of. The playing field is never level for anyone um, in any field you're in. If you're not already the incumbent, it's not a level playing field. And, and not just a political incumbent, maybe an incumbent in a, a corporation. Um, and so I don't dwell on that. It's not level. Um, and I have to go forth with optimism and the belief that there are enough people out there who would like a refreshing change from the old guard. People have to believe that it's worth their time and trouble to go vote on their way to work one morning, going up, getting up a little early or at lunch or after work. Many times people will say, what's the point? Um, nothing's going to change whether I vote or not. It's a waste of my time. So when I've been talking to people, um, and especially Democrats, I think there's a belief now that their, their vote has a serious possibility of counting. And I think that's an inspiring and motivating. I was part of the people. I actually quit the work assignment I was on to come. I was in Georgia at the time to come back to Alabama the last two weeks of that campaign to knock on doors because it was that important to me personally that he won this race. Not so much because he was a Democrat, but because of the alternative. So I got involved, and I believed. Every door I knocked on, I said, this could come down to one vote, and it could be your vote. And people were motivated by that, by the opportunity to have, to, not just to participate, because they know that it's kind of there, that they have the opportunity to participate and to vote, but that this time their voice was going to be heard. And that's very powerful. The most beneficial thing that came out of that race is there are many people who say, oh, what the heck, it's not worth it. Now, now realize that it, that it can be a powerful tool for them to have a voice in how they're going to be governed. So I tell people that when I speak with them, your vote counts, you know that. And it, in my situation, it could be a handful of votes as well that, that decide the race. And, you know, that's inspiring. If you're the one that can push something over the line to completion, you, you've become a part of whatever that movement is or, or whatever, that whatever that effort is. And then you, in turn, become invested in that and making sure that it's, that it's well executed after the race is over with. I think my biggest dream is that we come together 
and create a more participatory government for ourselves, that we step up and say, not just, hey, I want to have a town hall meeting, but that we actually feel, number one, that we can participate because it's, it's shunned, you know, we'll take care of things, don't worry about that. They don't want to have to deal with us as, as citizens. But I think if it, it's better for everyone if, if you participate, if you share your concerns. At the same time, you say, well, this is, you know, this is a problem, but have we tried this to fix it? Or, you know, in other words, contribute the whole idea, not just complain about something. I think if, if citizens step up and say, we want to participate because our input is going to make the outcome better for all of us, that that gets accepted by those that are in control and in power right now. So I, I think it's to our advantage to have a more participatory government, and there are, there are hundreds of ways we can do that. An Alabama native, Dr. Stacy Probst is founding director of Emerge Alabama. The Emerge program inspires women to run for office and hones their skills to win. The goal is clear to increase the number of Democratic women serving in public office in Alabama. Her professional experience includes government relations, issue advocacy, nonprofit executive management, higher education, career development, and medical research. Dr. Probst graduated from New College at the University of Alabama and received her doctorate in physiology and biophysics from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Her research areas focused on cancer and lung inflammation. I wanted to do something to shift the trajectory of Alabama, my home state, which I care about deeply but sits at the bottom of every quality of life list in America, us in Mississippi typically. It's frustrating because the people here are wonderful. There is so many there are so many wonderful attributes that this state has and we or whoever's in charge, right? The powers that be have kept this very much a plantation economy. And that plantation economy takes from the poor and gives to the rich. And it's extraordinarily frustrating to watch it. It's extraordinarily frustrating to watch people live in terrible, toxic situations that they can't get out of. Um, and I just wanted to, to do my small part, find my, find my route to that place where I could help make a change, whatever incremental change that was. 
And it took me a little while to find a foothold, uh, but I did. And I uh, became the director of GASP, which is a clean air organization. Now, it wasn't really up and running when I took it, when I took the reins. There wasn't any money and they didn't really have an agenda. So um, it was a wonderful opportunity to chart new territory and there had not been a real clean air organization i'm talking about outdoor pollution that's not focused on car emissions but focused on the major source of emissions which are from uh polluting industry so it was that opportunity um and that brought me directly up against alabama power drummond company walter energy uh the people who drive who gets elected in this state, the people who drive, who get, who has, who makes money here, even drives our university system. Power in Alabama is centered in Montgomery with the legislature to a certain extent, but they're really puppets of a bigger thing. And then Tuscaloosa was the University of Alabama Board of Trustees. And I don't think people recognize exactly how influential that group of people are in driving Alabama's economy. And they get a major portion of our state budget every year. Paul Bryant Jr. was the head, was the president of that University of Alabama Board of Trustees for 10 years. And it's pretty well known that he got Bentley elected. That was his guy. Point is, there are power brokers in Alabama who are at the top of this plantation economy. And it was apparent, as I led GASP for three and a half years, exactly who those people are. They're making a tremendous amount of money. They are not reinvesting it in Alabama. And they are undermining our own local governments consistently, always. Uh, and that's very, very frustrating because you cannot turn around something if you, you cannot shift policy. So working in an issue-based way made me realize that's not going to work. I don't have any legislators in, in Montgomery that are going to help us with this. They are paid. They are, their campaign dollars come from these, from these polluting industries. So you have to go what they call back up the river. We need new people in office, and we need people who have not been corrupted in office. But you can't send one, you know, Mr. Smith at a time, right? You can't send the one person at a time into office and expect it to change. You have to have a saturation of people um, into office. Now, that collided with the idea that women are unbelievably underrepresented in positions of influence. And I mean that in every arena. Um, but if you think about government specifically, what you find, the data tells us, is that 15% of the Alabama legislature is female. The adult population of women in Alabama is 52%. We're the majority. What are we doing? <laughs> but then you look at the history of Alabama and you find out how we got here, which is very much like the black population. Women have been actively suppressed here by culture, through economics. There are all kinds of ways that that um, happens. And as a side note, Alabama and Mississippi are the only two states left in the country, in the U.S., that do not have an equal pay law on the books. 
once again, women and minorities. Plantation economy, we're still on that, you know, that framework. You see it. You start to see it so clearly. So also at the federal, state, and statewide level, women are, are only represented, are represented less than 10% at that level for, um, for government representation. I mean, it's horrific in Alabama. So we got to change that. And those two things come together, right? The fact that we're still living in a white, a white patriarchy, if you will. And the people who are essentially disenfranchised or however you want to put it, being, being, you know, somebody's boot is on their neck, being kept down, have to, the only thing we have in our favor are numbers. So those numbers coming together are really what I was looking for. And then Hillary did not become president. And I had been meeting with more and more women around our state who were talking to each other during that election, during the 2016 presidential election, about how wonderful this was going to be, you know, working to get her elected. And we did that. And when it all went down the way it did, it was the worst representation of America. You know, that now our president was officially a white person of inherited wealth who um, is toxic in every way, demeans every, every group of people, disabled people, black people, women, um, and did it out and proud. It, it aligns with the idea of a oligarchical, plutocratic sort of setup, right, where all the white rich men make all the decisions. Thank you very much. We will keep the money, and we will take care of you one way or the other. That women and, and people, poor people, have provided um, free labor. Free labor, uh, low-pay labor um, for, a, for all of history. <laughs> I mean, that's legitimately the way it worked. Um, that has to change in order for, and, and I think Trump's ascendancy to the presidency, which I, I won't say that he was elected because it just doesn't feel that he was, <laughs> doesn't feel like it, is, a, is what I see as a, is a reaction globally not just in the U.S., but globally, um, to the idea of increasing equity. Around the country and around the world, you know, the Women's March is a very good example. I was already scheduled to go to Hillary's inauguration and to President Clinton's inauguration. And um, the Women's March was going to be held on the same weekend. And so I was already scheduled to go, and we went. And then, you know, thousands and thousands of women turned out in Alabama. And they also drove in. Not only did they march here locally, they drove in buses from the major, you know, population centers here. And then it was the largest march worldwide ever. I have been, I, once again, I lived for 10 years there. And those are never as as joyful, 
community oriented, you know, I mean, you didn't, it wasn't just women, it was men and children and it was all of us together. It was an extraordinary experience. Watching the media try to make it something it was, you know, making something it wasn't, watching the new administration try to say negative things about it was just really disheartening. But we all knew better. And so it was time to go home and go to work because it wasn't just a march. It was the beginning, the beginning of, of us joining together and working toward equal representation for ourselves and for all the communities that do not have equal representation, fair representation. So that's what we did. And Emerge Alabama really came out of that, the, the relationships of organizing that march in many ways. A lovely, wonderful, my hero, Rebecca Rothman, um, out of Tuscaloosa, um, she, you know, did the morning a few days after the uh, ele- the election in 2016 she took her couple of days like we all did and turned around and then started and called Emerge America and said we want to start this in Alabama and Emerge America at the time had 16 affiliates 15 or 16 affiliates which means state-based you know every affiliate is state-based and they were essentially at the time saying well we're not really you know looking to expand you know to the south or whatever they were you know, whatever their, their hang-up was. But then that changed. They called her back and said, okay, wait a minute. We need to. We have so such a high level of request. And Emerge America had already been in position for 15 years. They weren't starting, you know, the year before or right after the election. It already had an infrastructure. It had a history. It had a model of how to get women into office. It had a training program that was proven. I love the story of Kamala Harris because she's one of the first women, emerge women. Um, and she was polling at 6% in her first DA race in San Francisco. And Andrea Steele, who's her friend, who is the president and founder of Emerge America, she went to her and said, what do I do? She is now, after two terms of at DA, two terms at AG in California, Attorney General, sorry, District Attorney, Attorney General, and now Senator Kamala Harris, presidential hopeful, potentially. So it's extra and I got to meet her on the bridge um, in Selma this year where we took our whole cohort of Emerge Alabama candidates. And it already had a proven history. Right. So we were going to be able to do a state based effort with a national infrastructure so that we didn't have to create something ourselves here to get it off the ground and the emerge network what it does is it you know we recruit and we train locally right that's what we're doing but the network feeds into places that perhaps it's harder to raise money i thought we would probably need that it has not been as needed as i thought (laughs) Speaking of the hopefulness of this state, after women essentially got Doug Jones elected, and, you know, I dare anybody to to tell me. It was a combination of things, but women were at grassroots campaigning for, for 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 a new senator, for a Democratic senator. I hesitate to say that it was about him. When the special election was called 
I, of course, was paying attention to all the candidates. On the Democratic side, eight men. And I'm sitting there looking at it going, are you joking me? There's not a single woman who's even contemplating, even making a, you know, a, a, an issue-based run, you know, anything, nothing. Eight men. So he obviously, you know, rose to the top through the primary. Uh, and people got behind him before then. The enthusiasm was for getting a Democrat elected and opposing essentially Alabama's Trump, which is, you know, the horrible, terrible Roy Moore. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, Roy Moore is offensive in every single way. Um, and the fact that he's been elected twice to the Supreme Court of Alabama is still baffling to this day. So in that sense, it was a movement. And it was also a special election that isolated this one race. It wasn't mixed in like a midterm or a um, general with a whole bunch of other races and amendments that go on our ballots, which we can talk about that because the amendments going on this year's ballot are very intentional in 2018. So it was going to be a pure test. And the battle was definitely uphill. But women got out in droves and talked to each other, canvas, phone banked, got together to get out the vote, um, even before the campaign really had much money, really had much organization. I've heard a story from every corner of Alabama of women who started doing field operations in their own communities, making their own t-shirts, making their own buttons, doing their own lists of people to go visit and knock on doors and call because the campaign didn't have that. Bottom line is that the women learned for themselves, and I'm saying this collectively because it is black and white women. Black women turned out the vote, obviously voted in the majority, 98%, um, and turned out the black vote in general. Uh, white women organized like crazy. The majority did not vote Democratic. However, that is going to change. I'm convinced. There are a lot of women who are hostages. Yeah. They are hostages to economics. They are hostages to children, I mean, to uh, religion, to caring for their children. There are a whole range of ways that women are kept, and some of them under physical mm -hmm. and um, mental and emotional abuse. So having grown up in a home that ran like that, I get it. Mm -hmm. I can completely relate. I started communicating with Rebecca and other women immediately, and I became a fundraiser for it, started raising money for it, um, got my organizing, you know, got on the organizing committee um, to a certain extent, and lobbied hard for it. And getting it was very satisfying because I know there were a lot of women interested because in a state like this, if you are a progressive woman trying to find a way to help change things here, you're not, first of all, you're not going to make good money. You know that for sure. The other thing is, it's almost impossible to even find that. Something that's truly satisfying to your soul. You know, truly allows you 
um, I was getting close to potentially leaving Alabama again. I mean, there were just was, you know, but I just so wanted to stay. Um, a lot of people wanted me to leave <laughs> because after, you know, running gas for three and a half years and, and um, pushing against the power structure, there were people who were unhappy and they expressed those views. And there were people who were conflicted who also expressed those views. And I say conflicted because in our state, people who seem to be good guys are actually continuing to support the status quo. Even if they're the head of a nonprofit organization that, that demonstrates that it's doing great work. That's very frustrating. And you run at it, you run at that at every turn. Some of the women who are now running for office um, have started a kind of phrase that I really love, which is the politics of ego are over and the politics of public service are back in. So the idea of extracting wealth as a representative of the people, they're extracting wealth, not, not returning it. It's heartening to think of what women will be able to do once we have sufficient numbers in office, and I know I'm sort of talking long term, but it's, I don't think it's that long term. The kind of hope that was generated by the women getting out and getting Doug Jones elected after the tragedy of the current president in office, it was it was fortifying. I mean, women were emboldened in this state, and we are fired up. We have power of numbers. We have power of empathy and sympathy. We have the power of recognizing for the first time that we cannot be too busy to run for office. We're doing everything else. I mean, we're doing, you know, unpaid work of America, just in general, women do, in their homes, in their churches, at their own places of work. Um, Women are constantly doing the unpaid and underpaid work and undercutting our own economic value. The concentrated wealth that we see needs to be returned to the people who labor for it. And that is sort of what I, that's what I believe women are going to be able to accomplish once we get into office. So Emerge Alabama became into existence in 2017 because the money was in place, they hired me as the founding director, and we got started right away. We knew we had to make the 2018 midterms. We had to make it. So we, con we condensed a training of seven, six or seven months into four and a half. And we got an unbelievably amazing class of women. The diversity is off the charts. Age, region, black, white. It's impressive. It's an incredible economic backgrounds. It's an incredible group of women. And I feel I'm just so fortunate to even know any of them. Right up to the February 9th deadline for Democratic candidates to declare, if they wanted a Democratic endorsement to declare, women were signing up. And the last week, two women in my class decided to run. We'd already had a couple of trainings and one for state senate and one for public service commissioner, which is a statewide office. Just so exciting, all of it. And they're running judges, House, Senate, congressional, um, like I said, public service commissioner. 
I now have, there's such a high need at this point that we're going to do a boot camp, which is what we call sort of an intense weekend for the women who did not have the lead time of knowing they were running before the training. That's going to be June 1, 2, and 3. To, to backtrack just a little bit, we started in January with our first class, with our inaugural class, uh, and that's 25 women. Um, 16 of the women in the class are running. We also have three alums who are who graduated from the Southern Regional Boot Camp in 2017, which I attended as well. That was in Atlanta. So we have 19 total right now. And with the boot camp, we could add another 20 to 30 because the boot camp is for women who are running. And then we start another class in the fall. So we're looking at a potential of you know, 40 to 50 women on the ballot in 2018 and 75 trained women within the first year and a half of MERGE's existence in Alabama. So we recruit and train women to run for office, progressive women, specifically a democratic organization, democratic political organization. The training is intense, the regular training, the, the training we do every year which is 70 plus hours, usually six or seven months. But like I said, this year we had to do it in four and a half because we had to get them graduated and ready for their primary. I mean, that's, you know, some of the women had primaries. Some don't, some do. I would say the recruiting and the training is really important, obviously, especially for women who are first time, running for the first time, first timers mostly because of this mystique of running for office. I mean, you know, you start to notice the intentionality of saying how hard it is to run for office, how much money it takes to run for office. You have to have support from corporations and, you know, I mean, from the, from the kingmakers, right? And they're called kingmakers for a reason because they only elect kings. So it's, or they only appoint kings. So it's an interesting thing to start to come to is realizing the the barriers that are put up consciously and subconsciously by the sort of patriarchy that we live in we teach them soup to nuts everything you have to know to run a campaign it's everything you would imagine finance fundraising compliance um canvassing you know field operations um it's everything. And we, we don't talk about our secret sauce, which, you know, is, is uh, there's specific things that women in Democrat, Democratic women specifically, and depending on the state that you're in, they're just very specific things that the women can do that are different, that are not even really available. Emerge Alabama has a, a page on the Emerge America website. We are in the process right now of they're creating individual websites for the different states which I'm very excited about and we're going to generate that content very soon but for now there's one page there's also we're on Facebook we're on Twitter you know the whole it, we're easy to find let's put it that way s-t-a-c-i-e at emerge a-l so e-m-e-r-g-e-a-l dot o-r-g our class is graduating. Our inaugural class is graduating on May 6th, this Sunday. 
which I am over the moon. Primaries are June 5th. Um, some of our women are in primaries. Like I said, we'll find out who makes it through. But no matter what happens this first year, we have built, we've started to build the pipeline. This is about growing a, you know, creating a pipeline of women that are feeding in to, and I'm not going to even call it a political system, feeding into governance. We need new govern people in the, who are new in our government because our government is corrupt. It is outwardly corrupt. It was only two years ago. There was a New York Times May 16th article featuring how the heads of each branch of our state government were either kicked out or convicted of felony fraud um, or driven out under an ethical shroud. It, that happened two years ago. It's extraordinary. Roy Moore, Mike Hubbard is the head of the legislature, Speaker of the House, Governor Bentley, obviously, um, and then Roy Moore is the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. All three of those men within just a few you know, months, really, within a year, were all driven out of office for their own unethical behavior and corrupt behavior. Yeah, the women talk a lot about being ethical, being transparent, being authentic. What women have to bring to the table, first of all, is a different way of governing as well. Women collaborate. They cross the idea of an aisle. Let's forget about the aisle. I don't even want to talk. What aisle? <laughs> women collaborate. You see something that needs, a problem that needs solving, and women get in there and try to solve it. And also, women are proactive in a lot of ways. So women, you know, want to prevent their child from getting sick. Not just take them to the hospital when they get sick. We do a lot of things in our day-to-day lives that are preventive of future problems. Prevent, you know, and so I see translating that into governance as well. We've already succeeded. I want to be more successful. I want to be increasingly successful. Not me personally, the group, what we're doing as a, as a collection of people. I have never seen a more powerful network of women established in my life. I mean, it's extraordinary. There are women all over this state who you can, I can call them and immediately they'll do whatever I want for, with no cost, (laughs) with their time. I mean, women are dedicated to getting each other elected. Women are dedicated to supporting each other economically. You know, we are all talking about, here's this thing I need done. Can I hire a woman? So the women who are running these campaigns hired their campaign managers out of the class, you know, the women who are running campaigns that we're going to be, the women who are going to be in the boot camp, who are, and I know some of them are going to be in the boot camp. They're from South Alabama. They're from North Alabama. Those women all have female campaign managers. Some of them first timers, but so what? We have to build an infrastructure alongside the infra- the, the candidates. So, um, Women helping women, supporting women, and women want to be qualified for what they're doing. So unlike, once again, men who um, 
I can't imagine someone more unqualified to be the president of the United States than the person who currently is. And women don't want that. Women want to be qualified. And knowing that, you know, we also had probably the most qualified presidential candidate in history who happened to be female. According to a lot of past presidents, they said she was definitely the most qualified. We want to change that narrative. The fact that someone like her could lose in whatever way it happened, doesn't matter, to the most unqualified man who's ever been president is, is a statement in and of itself, a something that has to change, that has to be different. And we are prepared so the women train, recruit, the network is critical. We have a saying now, we we're going to run for office and we're going to pull a woman up behind us. This is not a competitive thing. This is a cooperation thing. This is we need enough women in office to be incorruptible. How magnificent would that be? What if you actually served your constituents? I know that's heretical. What if you had a Secretary of State that said, I want every Alabamian who's eligible to vote, and I'm going to help you become eligible? When the law changes, I'm going to go out and sign you up and register you to vote. I mean, we have some of the lowest voting turnouts in, in America because of a history of suppressing voters that, that the people in power know won't vote for them. The smaller the turnout, the more likely the people incumbents, the people in power, will get elected. And so you just, it, we talk about this a lot, too. It's math, not magic. This is not... It, it has running for office and serving as an office has become more of a career path than service. And it's also been treated as something mystical. It's not. The mathematics are here are the number of people in your district or your state or wherever it is. Here are how many people you need to get elected. Here's the history of everybody who's voted. Here's how many people you might be able to register, you know, but here's your audience. And you message to that audience and you help them understand what it is that your intentions are and how you want to, you know, collaborate with them to make their lives better in their community. And then you just tell them that. They can absolutely um, contribute online, which is the easiest way to do it. And it captures all the information we need. We are not a political action committee. We are a 527. um, And contributors can be just you know discovered so we wouldn't want you to think that that's not true and we want to be transparent anyway yeah i mean you know this is what it's it's the days are done about being embarrassed to be a progressive in alabama working in some of the poorest most environmentally damaged communities that for generations and generations have been poisoned by toxins that polluters dump in this in this state or, you know, open sewer sewage in, in the Black Belt. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to see that and not do anything about it. And in many instances, continue to encourage that. That is what our current, the people currently serving in office are doing. And it doesn't matter race. It's blacks and whites who are, you know, once they get to that position are completely corruptible whether by bribing or bullying. And we need, like I said, a saturation, enough enough women to change that. So Emerge Alabama is officially not even been here a year, not been established a year. 
And here we are graduating our first class. And we have raised, I mean, I want to say this because it's really important to, to thank everybody listening. We have been able to raise more money in the first month of this year than I thought we would raise in the six months of this year. Now that tells you, that is hope right there. That is hope. Also, ask a woman that you admire in your community, would you please run for office? You know, have you thought about it? Women generally need to be asked to run. They don't, because once again, it's about ego, right? Women don't assert themselves in that way, generally. Um, So, and they also don't see many examples of women in public office. So ask a woman in your community who you admire, say, you know, please, I want you to represent me. Would you consider running for office? Send her to me. We'll talk about it. I have, I, I had this encounter and they say it's always, they say, they, they told me this was true, but I've had it now specifically happen to me where I met a woman haphazardly at a function where somebody was raising money for Emerge. This local band just decided to take up tips for Emerge, you know, which was very, you know, heartening. Um, and I was there and there was this young woman um, and she we knew each other through friends or we had, you know, we were connected through friends. And I said, well, when are you going to run for office? And I say that pretty much to everybody at this point. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I say it to young girls too, you know. Um, I said, when are you going to run for office? And she did the reaction that every woman gives me initially, which is, oh, never. Oh, no, no, no. That's not, I'm not the right person for that. I want to work behind the scenes. I want to help. But that's not, you know, putting myself out front. That's not me. Guess who's running for office? This, this uh, election. She just, she registered, you know, she made the deadline in February, February 9th deadline. And she is running. And um, I have story after story like that now. But pulling, making that pipeline, pulling up women behind us. Oh, adopt a candidate. We have all these fantastic women running for office, but they need volunteers. They need the same help that we turned out for Doug Jones. I have said this to a lot of women as well. We got that man elected. Can we now turn our attention to getting ourselves elected locally at every level of office? That's also a key. Um, Volunteering, adopting a candidate is just brilliant because you get to focus and not spread yourself too thin. I mean, volunteering is, you know, is, is a resource in and of itself because the most valuable thing I have in this world is time. And I think a lot of people feel that way, you know. But dedicating yourself to that person, getting elected that you believe in, will make you feel like a hero. I mean, it really, the, the, the emotion that our state had, all those people who worked so hard for that special election, turning that key for us was massive. It's like a springboard, you know, that took a lot of people's hope and just, and we'd had a lot of discussions about what are we going to do if he loses? I mean, you know, everybody was prepping themselves and saying, well, it'll still be a win because it's going to be close. Um, Yeah, yeah, I can say now it was going to be hard if we lost. It was going to be hard. Emerge Alabama, if you Google it, Our website will come up. It's on Emerge America's broader, bigger website. We have a page there under states. Um, But you can go to it directly as well. You can contribute there. You can sign up to receive our notifications by email. In the future, you'll be able to apply to trainings.
And you can contact me at any point in time at stacy at emergeal.org, which is S-T-A-C-I-E at E-M-E-R-G-E-A-L dot O-R-G. There's constantly something going on. And we're also, we have regional organizing committees. So we have things going on all around the state. It's not just, it's not, and as a matter of fact, what something I love about this is it not, it did not germinate in Birmingham. It germinated out of Mobile and Tuscaloosa and Montgomery and Huntsville. I mean, we are just getting started. Thanks to Amy Wasaluka, Lindsay Deckard, and Stacy Probst, and to all the women of Emerge Alabama participating in this series. To see photos and to learn more, please go to greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. The third and final episode in this Present Tense podcast series will feature Emerge Alabama founder Rebecca Rothman, as well as a surprise guest. Are you interested in running for office in Alabama? Contact Stacy Probst today at stacy at emergeal.org. That's S-T-A-C-I-E at emergeal.org. For more information about Emerge Alabama and Emerge America, go to emergeamerica.org. To learn more about the Red Dirt Roses, go to reddirtroses.com. Our theme music is by cellist Craig Holtgren. Our show is produced in the studios of Green Bucket Press in Irondale, Alabama. And remember, make sure that you are registered to vote, that you know your voting location, and do it. Go vote! Won't you be setting soon? Cause in my bed